I'm Rochelle Young. And I'm Sam Tracy. And you're listening to This Week in Drugs, the leading podcast on all things drugs and drug policy, including news, science, health, and history. This show is an all-volunteer project by students and alumni of Students for Sensible Drug Policy, an awesome organization working to end the war on drugs. Every week on This Week in Drugs, we hope to educate the public and decision makers about drugs in order to eliminate harmful misconceptions and improve public policy. And hopefully have some fun while we're at it. We neither condemn nor condone drug use. Rather, we envision a world in which our attitudes and laws surrounding drugs are grounded in science, compassion, health, and human rights. As always, we'll start things off with a discussion of the biggest drug news from the last week, a couple of quick hit headlines, and a forecast of upcoming events in the weeks ahead. Then, it's time for the third installment of October's Drug of the Month, where we'll go over the history of Kratom. Finally, for our roundtable discussion, we'll be doing our final segment on marijuana legalization initiatives with a discussion of the campaigns in Maine with David Boyer and Massachusetts with Jim Borgasani. And of course, we'll wrap things up with our call to action, because while educating ourselves about drugs is important, it's not as important as using that knowledge to improve our communities and make the world a better place. So thanks for joining us for episode 66 of This Week in Drugs. Now it's time for the weekly news and forecast, where we're going to talk about some of the most exciting news from the last week and some exciting events coming on up. So, Rochelle, do you want to start things off with our first story? Yeah, so for our first story this week, in a completely unprecedented move, the Drug Enforcement Administration, known as the DEA, announced that it would be withdrawing its proposal to ban Kratom using its emergency scheduling powers. So we've been following this story for the past couple weeks, and... Um, We told you that, you know, it would be moving very quickly as um, the DEA was uh, planning on scheduling Kratom as a Schedule 1 controlled substance. Um, But instead, it's going to be opening a public comment period, which will end on December 1st. The official notice published by the DEA indicated that the agency would consider public feedback as well as formal input from the Food and Drug Administration before making its determination regarding the scheduling of Kratom after all. So this week's announcement by the DEA comes amidst enormous mounting pressure from the public and Congress to halt the proposed Kratom ban. So um, just as a reminder, earlier this year on August 30th, the DEA had announced that it would be placing Kratom in Schedule 1 of the Controlled Substance ban- Substances ban- Act, essentially banning uh, the substance. And as early... Um, And that would take effect as early as September 30th. So the ban didn't actually occur as of that deadline, and observers have been waiting since then to see what the DEA's next steps would be. Yeah, I mean, this was incredible news. I could barely believe it, just because we've seen so many other emergency schedulings go through with, at least in my view, kind of an equal amount of, of say, you know, internet uproar, but without actually getting any attention on Capitol Hill. So, like, Research chemicals is one of the, the major ones. It seems that every few months they ban another group of research chemicals for trying to, to target those and people get angry about it. But I guess I, I'm very curious about whether this was like because 
there actually is a much bigger constituency from from kratom use or if it has to do with it being you know a plant-based substance rather than something that's more more of a scary chemical sort of thing so numbers wise it looks like um the white house the White House's official petition website received more than 140,000 140, signatures in favor of halting the ban. Wow. Um, and the Drug Policy Alliance, through its own action center, sent about 60,000 uh, letters or emails to Congress um, from its supporters and donors. Mm-hmm. Um I, I think you're right. I it's hard to compare that with like what the response as far as sheer volume was for other substances we've seen in the past. I do think that um, based on testimonial evidence that kratom has been effective in treating um, opioid use and opioid mm-hmm. addiction, that definitely gained a lot of traction in Congress since that's such a huge issue. Um, not just within the drug policy reform circles recently, but all over the country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. It's not just that it's not that harmful, but it is actually has some medicinal benefits when in comparison to, to research chemicals, for example, that's more of like a abstract of like, oh, we want to use it for scientific purposes and like understanding chemicals more, but it's it is mostly just a recreational kind of drug there. And just this whole experience just makes me, I mean, it's both inspiring and so depressing at the same time, because it's like, if we had had the internet back in early 1900s marijuana probably would never have been illegal in the first place because there was the same kind of protests in terms of the medical community and people saying like you know this actually has a lot of uh medical uses and and isn't that harmful but it was really easy to ignore and now we have this the same kind of situation but it's easy to activate so many people that we've actually hopefully stopped it yeah i uh just one last point to something you said earlier, which is that whether the fact that this is a plant-based substance had any effect on um, the at least the response from elected officials. And it is kind of interesting uh, to compare to cannabis because Kratom has been described by so many um, unexpected supporters as being just a plant that's been safely used in other parts of the mm-hmm. world by thousands of people for hundreds of years. And that very well could have been a description of cannabis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And so we will be keeping an eye on this. The, that, that is just the one thing that worries me is that they've just kind of delayed their decision and saying that they're going to, to be looking at it more carefully. So there is still a chance that it gets put on Schedule 1. And so we'll have to just be staying vigilant and making sure that this process uh, goes properly. Um, But yeah, moving on then to our next story. Uh, This one is that as part of the normalizing of relations between the United States and Cuba, President Obama has issued an executive order relaxing restrictions on Americans purchasing uh, certain drugs, including cigars and rum that Cuba is known for, and bringing them back home with them. So under these new rules, Americans who are visiting Cuba are allowed to purchase an unlimited amount of cigars or rum as long as they're for personal consumption. So this means that businesses are still not allowed to buy, say, Cuban cigars to then import and sell in the United States. And that applies to both online middlemen as well as brick and mortar cigar shops. So, I mean, who knows how enforced it'll be, but you wouldn't be allowed to, say, bring back a bunch of cigars and sell them on eBay or something like that. So this is kind of interesting uh, to me from a Canadian perspective because, Mm. um, you know, detours through Canada to Cuba or whatever used to often be the way um, 
you know, Americans could illicitly travel to Cuba and mm-hmm. Cuban cigars were actually like a souvenir that we sold at Canadian like tourist traps or like tourism shops. Oh, in Canada. In mm-hmm. Canada because oh, uh, yeah. because we could import Cuban mm-hmm. cigars. Um, so this is an interesting way to um, to uh, advance foreign relations. We often see foreign relations framed in the mm-hmm. context of countries working together uh, to stop drugs. Mm-hmm. And we don't often talk about how their exchange of approved drugs may strengthen foreign relations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is interesting that this is, uh, as you said, is such kind of like an iconic thing of, I mean, rum less so to me at least, but Cuban cigars, especially growing up in Connecticut, it was always a thing that like there's a lot of tobacco farming there and people would say as a point of pride of like, oh, the tobacco grown at like this farm is used to wrap Cuban cigars. Like it's mm. really good. And so, <laughs> and and this this makes me wonder so much too of like how much of the uh attraction and uh interest in cuban cigars was because of the ban and not actually because of their quality like i've never smoked one before i'm, I'm not much of a cigar person uh, so i probably couldn't even tell the quality of a cigar if, if i was doing some kind of uh test or something but there, there's so much, when there's that kind of mystique about it being like oh this is an illicit thing i mean there's the the scenes in movies of like rich businessmen being like oh at the end of signing a deal like let's smoke some cuban cigars <laughs> and it's like a wink wink nod nod kind of thing and it's like is that going to be lost if now it's just anyone is allowed to and, and you're not a you're not cool for doing it anymore basically i mean i've literally even already seen that response on facebook like mm-hmm. some of my friends who may not like know more about cuban cigars than i do were already mm-hmm. like oh people who smoke cigars already know that cubans aren't that good and i was like <laughs> i was like oh as soon as it's legal it's not cool anymore like that's something mm-hmm. we've seen you know with so many in so many different uh scenarios Mm-hmm. including legalization of cannabis where youth use has actually been reduced since it was legalized in Colorado. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it, it will be interesting too, to see how this all plays out because so th- th- this was kind of the, the second step in a relaxation of these laws. Cause it used to be completely banned. And uh, back in January of 2015, uh, they kind of repealed it to the point that you could uh, bring back a maximum of $100 worth of, of rum or cigars with you. Um, and so now there's no limit. So I wonder if this will end up kind of leading to a lot more of a, of a gray market sort of thing than, than previously and, and how, yeah, that'll impact the, the interest in actual consumption of it. So speaking of Canada, and I actually have a couple Canadian stories or headlines coming up uh, this episode, but for the first one, um, after more than a decade of confusion at Canadian airports, the country's Air Transport Security Authority, uh, which is known as CATSA, and is kind of like Mm -hmm. our Canadian TSA, is now providing... I know, it's a cute little Katza. Um, It's now providing guidance to passengers traveling with prescription cannabis. So the Katza website, updated this week, now advises people who are traveling with medical cannabis to be prepared to show airport officials their Health Canada registration certificate. So not unlike the medical marijuana cards you would get here in the United States, but this one is issued by the federal government. And um, they've also advised travelers that screening officers are required to call local police to verify their paperwork patients traveling oh, wow. sp- from smaller airports may have better luck um on that end since in airports where there is not a police presence the passenger's information is noted from their b- boarding pass and passed along to local authorities instead so 
Uh, finally, although passengers are allowed to put their medicine in their checked luggage, Katza recommends they put it in their carry-on instead so that they can have it immediately on them and be able to show it to the screening officers firsthand. It's probably less sketchy that way, and if it's mm-hmm. in their checked luggage, they risk um, having like a sniffer dog uh, alerting to it, and then uh, yeah. um, then the officials would have to like seize the luggage, identify mm-hmm. the passenger, call them off the plane, like go through that whole process um, instead of doing it up front. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, this kind of just goes as one one more point in the column of why federal legalization is, is such a helpful thing, because, I mean, even now that we have 25 states, a, a full half of our, our jurisdictions here in the U.S. Have, have legal medical marijuana, but the TSA, I mean, officially, it, it's interesting of like how enforced it actually is but the 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 policy of course is still that even if you're a medical patient going to a medical state even if that state has reciprocity you're not allowed to to be bringing stuff with you at least i I think in the eyes of all of the tsa right i think um practically and what we know patients have been doing is that they Mm -hmm. can travel with their medicine up to the allowable amount in their states um Mm -hmm. and typically the tsa won't call local law enforcement because even if local law enforcement showed up they would just be they wouldn't have any enforcement powers under Mm -hmm. their state laws um and so it's been a de facto um permitted um activity but like you said, federally, you're still not supposed to be traveling in federal airspace um, mm-hmm. with cannabis, which remains illegal federally. The downside to um, this Canadian approach, though, is that it does continue to like stigmatize and s- single out um, patients who do use medical cannabis. Um, you mm-hmm. know, people who have uh, chronic illnesses or other um, types of illnesses that require them to travel with their medicine, whether that's opioids or other prescription drugs, um, don't have to be flagged down while they're traveling, inconvenienced by being stopped, having to carry this extra paperwork with them. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, even if you're what you're doing is completely legal, it might be super intimidating if you're like a little grandma to have the police come up to you and everyone in line seeing you being searched and um, having them go through your stuff. So mm-hmm. it's good that there is some guidance for patients to follow and that they now have clarification that they are, are allowed to do this. It's still somewhat of a double standard compared to how other patients are treated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there does still definitely have a lot of room for improvement for actually not just allowing them to, to, to carry their medicine with them, but actually treating them just like any other patient rather than still singling them out like that. And so in further international news, uh, the International Criminal Court, which is an intergovernmental organization that prosecutes people for genocide, crimes against humanity and war crimes. So really serious stuff has issued a statement that they are monitoring the situation in the Philippines and reminding the country that they're party to treaties that give the court jurisdiction in their borders. So in this statement, uh, the lead prosecutor of the ICC writes, and here's kind of a long quote, but I think it's it's worth uh, just including. Let me be clear. Any person in the Philippines who incites or engages in acts of mass violence, including by ordering, requesting, encouraging, or contributing in any other manner to the commission of crimes within the jurisdiction of the ICC is potentially liable for prosecution before the court. My office, in accordance with its mandate under the Rome Statute, will be closely following developments in the Philippines in the weeks to come and record any instance of incitement or resort to violence with a view of assessing whether a preliminary examination into the situation of the Philippines needs to be opened, end quote. 
So that was a, a big block of very formal text. But basically, they've got an eye on the Philippines and are essentially threatening that if this continues, that they are then going to be opening a formal investigation, which uh, is a pretty huge deal. Yeah, it's kind of um, it's surprising that the ICC itself is stepping in in this case, um, which is a huge indication that they are serious about what Duterte is not just allowing in his country, but like they mm-hmm. said, provoking or inciting. Um, mm-hmm. They do see it as serious criminal uh, violations or human rights violations. Um, and that and I'm glad that they're taking it to the step and it's not just individual individual countries you know, say, Mm -hmm. cutting off um, economic ties to the Philippines or um, otherwise trying to persuade their behavior in other ways. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it is interesting, too. I mean, um, as I've said before, like foreign policy is not really my my forte in political science kind of stuff. But uh, so I don't know a ton about the ICC, but it's it's a bit unclear as to how this will actually play out if the ICC does end up opening an investigation. Because uh, so previously, they're actually still a a pretty young organization. And I think that they've uh, only indicted, um, I think it's about just under 40 people so far. Um, And actually, so far, it's only been essentially African warlords has been like their main focus. And there's been a few African heads of state who have been indicted one of which is still in office. And so because of this being an international organization, a lot of the time it goes a long way in terms of affecting international relations. But if you're a popular politician in your own country and you have an army and there's not really a way for them to arrest you very easily. So it ends up uh, with someone who's really popular, like Duterte, who's his approval ratings kind of shockingly are, are very high. Um, so, even if they do crack down on him, who, who knows what will actually happen. Yeah, and as far as participation in treaties, too, I think this this came up in conversation recently, and I can't remember with whom, but um, someone was asking me if Canada legalizes marijuana, will they have to pull out of you know a lot of international drug treaties? Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's unprecedented, unprecedented. I think some other countries have pulled out before and rejoined the treaties with reservation. Mm-hmm. Um so that might be just the route that the Philippines goes. And um, since it's been done before, it almost seems uncontroversial mm-hmm. at that yeah. point. Yeah, and Duterte has been, I mean, he positions himself as so much of like the strong man who doesn't care what the rest of the, the world thinks and like demonizes both Obama and China and whoever. And so it, it doesn't, it would be very surprising if he did actually apologize or anything. He'd probably just posture a lot more. Right. He, he doesn't seem to... Um, believe he's doing anything wrong, really. Mm-hmm. So moving on to our quick hit headlines now. Um, over in the UK, the government's Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency, known locally as the MHRA, uh, which is kind of like their equivalent of the FDA, has conducted a formal review of cannabidiol, or CBD, and concluded from that review that it does indeed have legitimate medical benefits. So following this review, CBD companies will now be allowed to sell their products legally as long as they're licensed by the MHRA. And the latest poll from Pew Research shows American support for marijuana legalization has climbed to another all-time high of 57 in support, with only 37% opposed. Ten years ago, only 32% of respondents said that they favored legalization and 60% opposed it, so it's almost completely flipped. 
Health authorities in Vancouver, BC, where North America's first safe injection site has been operating for more than a decade, has now approved a women-only facility. Uh, though exceedingly rare, there have been reports of sexual assault by female users at Insight in the past, and so the women-only facility is meant to address that and other potential issues facing female injection drug users. A new report from the ACLU and Human Rights Watch has found despite many states loosening their laws, there are still more arrests for marijuana possession than for violent crimes in the United States. According to the study, there were 574,641 arrests in 2015 for small quantities of marijuana, so personal possession, not even including trafficking, uh, which is about 13.6% more than the 505,000 arrests made for all violent crimes. And finally, in Ontario, Canada, formerly incarcerated individuals will now receive free doses of naloxone nasal spray upon their release as part of the province's strategy to curb opioid overdoses. The province is also planning to to make naloxone nasal spray available to others in at-risk situations. And so now moving on to our weekly forecast, uh, Students for Sensible Drug Policy launched its online phone bank today. Yeah. Uh, this will... Hooray! This will allow supporters of sensible drug policy reform, whether or not you're a student, uh, to call voters in Florida, California, Massachusetts, and Nevada to to educate them about the marijuana reform initiatives that will appear on the ballot in their states. So if you've never phone banked before, don't worry. This is a super easy way to get involved in the political process and really influence how um, voters may Uh, make their decisions on uh, November 8th. SSDP's phone bank is one of the best ones I've ever used and they make it super Mm -hmm. simple by providing you with a script and auto-dialing targeted voters for you. So if you want to check that out, um, the website is legalize2016.org. And this coming Saturday, October 22nd, listeners living near New York City can attend a full-day training on psychedelic harm reduction hosted by the Zendo Project, which is a great group who we've had on the show before. According to the event page, it's the first time they've offered an event like this, and the workshop will highlight techniques that can be used in the festival environment, as well as present and discuss ways of being a good psychedelic Samaritan in everyday life. Wow, that sounds like an awesome workshop. I hope they expand it to other cities soon. Mm -hmm. So that's all for this week's segment of Weekly News and Forecast. As always, Sam and I have our eyes out uh, for the biggest uh, news and headlines in the world of drugs and drug policy. But there's always so much going on that we may miss uh, your favorite story. So if you do read something that catches your eye and you want us to discuss on next week's episode, um, give us a shout out on social media. We're on Facebook or Twitter um, or send us an email at thisweekindrugs at gmail.com. Now it's time for the drug of the month, where we take a closer look at the background, science, history, and recent trends in a different drug each month. October's drug of the month is Kratom, which the DEA recently proposed to ban. Last week, Sam went over the science of Kratom and how it interacts with the human body. This week, I'll go over the history of Kratom, which has been used in Southeast Asia as a common pain relief remedy and stimulant for generations. As Sam and I have both mentioned, while Kratom is commonly used herbal medicine in certain parts of the world, 
Its introduction to the Western world, and particularly North America, is a relatively recent development. That's why not much in the way of either scientific research or cultural history has been written about Kratom, or at least not in English. Of course, the word Kratom, or Kratom, itself comes from the Malaysian word for the plant, Ketom. According to some online sources, the use of Kratom was likely first introduced into Western civilization by early Dutch traders, and may have been first described in Western literature during the early 19th century by Peter Willem Korthals, a botanist for the East India Company. Many sources also point to an 1836 article by James Lowe as the first authoritative record on Kratom. In his dissertation on the soil and agriculture of the British settlement of Penang, Lowe writes that the peasants and rural workers in Malaysia used Kratom as a substitute when opium was unavailable or not affordable. In 1895, Kratom was given its botanical name, Mitragyna speciosa, by a by a man named E.M. Holmes, who was curator of the Materia Medica Museum of the Pharmaceutical Society at that time. Holmes also referred to Kratom's use as an opiate substitute. Two years, two years later, another researcher, H. Ridley, recorded the use of Kratom to wean people off of opium and its extracts. So it's clear from these early records that Kratom's use as a substitute or treatment for opiate use has been well documented for centuries and likely dates back much further than Western civilization's contact with it suggests. In 1907, a researcher named L. Ray described how Kratom could be smoked, chewed, or drunk as an infusion with opium-like effects regardless of the method of administration. He expressed hope that an active principle would soon be isolated and its usefulness to medicine assessed. Samples of the leaves were then sent to the U University of Edinburgh, where 14 years later, mitragynine, one of its most abundant alkaloids, was isolated. On August 3, 1943, the government of Thailand passed the Kratom Act, which made possession and sale of Kratom illegal, and even included cutting down Kratom trees in order to enforce the law. Some sources claim that the ban on Kratom was not driven by public health concerns, but rather because it was being used as a substitute for opium, which the government relied on as a legal narcotic product to generate taxes from, and therefore Kratom was its competitor. This theory may sound pretty familiar to anyone who may believe that the pharmaceutical lobby may have had something to do with the DAA's emergency proposal to ban Kratom here in the United States. Kratom was also made illegal in Malaysia in 1952. Over on the Western Front, there was a resurgence of interest in its research in the 1960s, which was spurred by a search for non-opiate analgesics. Researchers found mitragynine to be comparable with codeine as an analgesic and cough suppressant, and that, unlike codeine at equivalent doses, kratom did not cause vomiting or shortness of breath. They also found Kratom to have no opiate-like addiction symptoms and to be much less of a respiratory depressant than codeine. Chemically unrelated to any known analgesic, it also appeared to be significantly less toxic. A 1988 letter to the editor in the Journal of Ethnopharmacology concludes, We are left with a drug which is claimed to be both a narcotic and a stimulant, two effects generally regarded as opposite. Even more intriguing is the connection of these effects with a chemical structure resembling a psychedelic hallucinogen rather than an opiate. The letter even predicts, 
While the market now has many non-opiate analgesics, Kratom may have a special role in the future as a replacement for methadone in addiction treatment programs. In 1975, a study of 30 Thai Kratom users was published. These were mostly older married men who had been using the drug for more than five years. 90% chewed the fresh leaf or took it as a powder. The leaves were chewed three to 10 times a day with stimulant effects beginning five to 10 minutes later. Almost all of the subjects said that they had become addicted because they sought to increase their work output. The drug was also said to calm the mind. The Kratom habit was noted to be a largely ritualistic rural phenomenon, with village society accepting male users who work to support their families, but not female users. In 2001, the Thai Narcotics Control Board indicated that Kratom was still the second most widely abused illegal substance in the country, particularly in rural and suburban areas. The drug is currently on the DEA's Drugs of Concern list, but the agency has maintained for years that Kratom should be a Schedule One substance, as the agency claims that it has a high potential for abuse, no currently accepted medicinal value, and that there is a lack of evidence of safety when used under medical supervision. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention reported in July that the number of calls to poison control centers related to Kratom had increased tenfold, from 26 in 2010 to 263 in 2016. Only 49 of all cases over the past six years were considered life-threatening. Health problems related to Kratom use are difficult to evaluate due to the apparently conflicting nature of reports from Asia and the West. In many of the poison control cases reported, Kratom was used in conjunction with other drugs. And because such reports are statistically insignificant in Southeast Asia, where the plant is primarily grown and commonly used, adulteration of extracts sold on the internet are likely behind many of the reports of Kratom toxicity here in the United States. Even if the poison control calls were purely attributable to Kratom overdose, 263 in one year, of which only 49 were life-threatening in over six years, is hardly anything compared to the nearly 19,000 overdose deaths caused by pharmaceutical prescription opioids in 2014, and more than 10,000 more caused by heroin. As of January 2015, neither the plant nor its alkaloids were listed in any of the schedules of the United Nations Drug Conventions. However, as of today, it is illegal in Australia, Thailand, Malaysia, Myanmar, Romania, and the U.S. states of Indiana, Mississippi, and Louisiana. Kratom is also a controlled substance in Denmark, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, Sweden, and New Zealand. So that's all for the history of Kratom. Next week, Sam will be back for our fourth and final installment of October's Drug of the Month, where he'll discuss recent news and trends in Kratom. time for a roundtable discussion where we bring together some of the brightest minds in drug policy reform to talk about the biggest issues facing us today. 
For today's episode, we'll be discussing the Maine and Massachusetts legalization initiatives with David Boyer, the campaign manager for Yes on One in Maine, and Jim Borgasani, the communications director for Yes on Four in Massachusetts. So thank you both for coming on. Thank you. Thank you for having us. So as, as we've said uh, before, uh, th- there's a lot in common between the two uh, initiatives in Maine and Massachusetts, uh, which isn't surprising because they're both primarily funded and run by the Marijuana Policy Project, uh, which is the organization behind legalization in both Alaska and Colorado. So it's no secret that you're affiliated since you both have the same campaign name, which is the Campaign to Regulate Marijuana Like Alcohol. So in very broad strokes, what exactly do your initiatives do in terms of what they have in common and what separates them? Uh, Well, in Massachusetts, our initiative would set up a a regulated system under the control of the Cannabis um, um, Control Commission, and it would uh, allow legal sales for adults 21 and over in licensed facilities. Uh, It would allow possession of up to um, 10 ounces, nine of which would have to be under lock and key in a house one ounce on on a person Uh, and basically it puts forward a regulated system very similar to other regulated industries in Massachusetts like the Alcoholic Beverages Control Commission like the construction industry like the banking industry we put forward a structure that's controlled by regulators and will uh, help return uh, uh, tax receipts to uh, the citizens of the state yes uh, Maine's initiatives Pretty similar. Uh, there's a couple differences. Our possession limit will be two and a half ounces. The regulator is the Department of Agriculture and uh, Forestry. And uh, we have social clubs in our initiative explicitly uh, allowing them and licensing for them, uh, which we're excited about. And ours also allows home cultivation as, as well. Uh, so by and large, they are pretty similar. Mm-hmm. And, and so a couple of the, the major differences that, that at least I've noticed between the two is, is one thing is the tax rates and that Massachusetts has a significantly lower tax rate than would be established in Maine. And, and the other kind of in the other direction uh, on the home growing side of things is that Massachusetts and Maine do both have six plants per adult, but Massachusetts law includes a cap of 12 per household while while Maine's is unlimited. So theoretically, if someone, say, had a house with six adults in it, they could grow 36 plants. Is that is that correct for both of those? Uh, that's correct for Massachusetts. Um, David, we have to talk about Maine. Yeah, that's accurate. I, I, I believe we have a lower tax rate than Massachusetts. I don't know if you said the opposite. Ours is 10 percent flat at the point of sale, a retail level. And that's mm-hmm. expected to bring in around 15, 20 million in, in new revenue that will go to the general fund. Of course, that depends on, you know, if Massachusetts also makes marijuana legal, um, that will cut into some of our revenue potentially. Um, and you're correct about the home cultivation rights. Our law mirrors what is available for patients currently, which is six flowering, 12 immature, and unlimited seedlings. Um, so we're, we're excited about that robust, um, there's a robust rights as well. Yeah, our tax rate, um, it's 3.25% special excise tax that would fund, I'm sorry, 3.75% special excise tax that would fund the administration mm-hmm. of the initiative, um, along with the 6.25% uh, regular sales tax. That brings it up to 10%. Mm-hmm. Then we add on a 2% optional local tax. So a community that's hosting 
a marijuana establishment can opt in and uh, and impose a two percent tax, similar to the meal tax that is in place in uh, many Massachusetts communities. Mm-hmm. So one thing that you both mentioned um, was social clubs or social consumption being allowed in some form or another um, in your respective initiatives. And this is unique because um, Alaska is the only state right now that is even exploring that. Colorado, for example, does have an initiative on the ballot ourselves here in Denver to allow um, limited social use. But this will be the first time that it was included in a state ballot initiative. Why did you guys make that decision uh, to have something like that? We made that decision because, you know, we looked at the momentum that, that marijuana advocates have in Maine and nationally. And you know, there's more support for making marijuana legal than ever before. And and it's only going up because once people understand the benefits of regulating marijuana like alcohol, uh, there are supporters. We don't we don't lose them. They don't waver. And so uh, with that in mind, we said that we should we should go for it. And because adults uh, deserve and need a right to uh, excuse me, because adults need uh, a place to responsibly use marijuana. If, if we're not allowing them to use it in public, um, if they can't do it at, at their hotel, then uh, just like when people drink, they, they drink at a bar, and there's no reason why adults can't responsibly use and consume marijuana um, <clears throat> at, at a uh, cafe or, or a bar, if you will. And, you know, at the, bo- at the end of the day, we could have the most restrictive legalization bill. We, we're going to make one gram legal, no home cultivation, and the opposition's campaign wouldn't change a bit. They'd still try to beat us up uh, over driving. They'd still try to beat us up over the kids. Um, so we, we figured that, you know, we have the facts on our side. We have the truth on our side. And we should um, we should go for it. Yeah, in Massachusetts, uh, we have uh, the ability to uh, open up a consumption on-site consumption uh, facility. But we uh, give the communities the ability to vote it in. In other words, um, only on a local referendum ballot vote uh, of a particular town would an on-site consumption uh, facility be allowed. Um, So there is a slight difference there. And I think that reflects sort of the electorate in Massachusetts. We just think that um, that is more palatable to uh, voters as we move forward with getting them to vote for legalization in the first place. All right. So thank you for those. So it, it is really interesting that the two Northeast initiatives have both uh, very similar tax rates. Uh, I, I did misspeak earlier saying that uh, Massachusetts was lower than Maine. Um, it's that the two of them are lower than, say, what's been done in, in Colorado or Washington, but are about the same or, or, or quite similar there. Um, and, and so how have each of these initiatives been in the Northeast instead of on the West Coast, where there's traditionally been a lot more friendliness uh, to cannabis uh, among legislators, even though there's still not that much out there. But how have they been received by the political establishment? Um, both, both Massachusetts and Maine are, are interesting in that they have Republican governors uh, with uh, Baker in Massachusetts representing the, the more moderate wing of the party. Uh, with Governor LePage in, in Maine being uh, a much more extreme and uh, kind of beyond Trump in, in even many ways of the uh, wing of the party. So how have they and, and other legislators reacted uh, to these initiatives? Well, in Massachusetts, it's been you know not an optimal reaction. Uh, we have about 15 state legislators who support our initiative. Um, we have Senator Elizabeth Warren, who has spoken about the need to regulate, and we have um, Congressman Seth Moulton, who has said the same thing. So we do have some uh, support, 
But by and large, a lot of the elected officials um, are afraid of this initiative. I think Mm -hmm. that they're politically um, unwilling to take the risk of saying that they back legalization of marijuana for whatever reason. We had Barney Frank, we have former Congressman Barney Frank, who now I think is a Maine resident, but he's a supporter as well. He was on a TV show over the weekend, Mm -hmm. and he was criticizing Massachusetts politicians for saying that, you know, they're open-minded about this, but this this initiative isn't the right one. Uh, and he's often compared that to gay marriage, that a lot of pit back then, mm-hmm. a lot of politicians said, well, I'm open to gay marriage. I just want to make sure that it works right and that we have the right sort of process in place. And as he pointed out, well, that's just a cop out. It's just mm-hmm. a dodge. Um, they, you know, they're trying to stay, say they're open minded just as a personal benefit to make them look, you know, give them some stature when in actuality they're against uh, legalization of any kind, as David mentioned. No matter what we had in here, they'd be saying the same things. Um, and I just want to point out, in, um, in Massachusetts, we had the Senate Special Committee on Marijuana go out to Colorado. And the narrative that they're saying is that when they went out there, when they left, that what they changed their minds. Mm-hmm. They went in there with their minds already made up. The, mm-hmm. the chairman of that special committee opposed decriminalization in 2008. He opposed medical marijuana in 2012. To think that he was going to approach a full-scale legalization initiative with an open mind is just silly. Mm -hmm. Every person on that committee who went to Colorado either opposed one or the other of those initiatives or both. So they didn't go to Colorado to have their opinions informed. They went there to have their opinions reinforced. Um, And it's it's been a very troubling sort of uh, narrative to to see played out that they're approaching this with open-mindedness because it's just not true. Mm -hmm. Here in Maine, we have similar opposition from our Republican governor, um, Governor LePage, but thankfully that's probably one of our selling points as he's uh, (laughs) said some pretty messed up stuff over the last year, four or five years, and most recently. Um, But otherwise, um, our Congress folks, uh, Congressman Pingree, she's been supportive at the federal level. Uh, Congressman Bruce Poliquin is probably you know, let the states decide tax or, or just, you know, know if he's asked. But by and large, um, elected officials don't want to be against this and they don't want to be for it. They, they think it'll pass and, you know, either privately they're happy about it or privately they're, they're sad about it, but they see the, the political writing on the wall and, and think it's best for them just to stay out of it. Uh, Senator Collins has done a remarkable job over the last 20 years or so of not taking a stance on state referendums, even though she votes here in Maine and uh, and has a choice. Um, so, you know, we've had state senators, state reps endorse the campaign, the ACLU of Maine, um, various city councilors in different, different towns, and... Um, we haven't had such a, a pushback from the establishment that, that you've seen in, in Massachusetts, and we're grateful for that, and polls look good. We're uh, a Press Herald poll, UNH poll, came out last Monday, showing us at 53% with 38% against and 10% undecided, so uh, we're cautiously optimistic about November. Very cool. Well, we had we did a we did an episode a couple weeks ago um, with your counterparts from the Arizona and Nevada campaigns, and it's kind of interesting to note that for all four of you, you're in a state with a Republican governor. Um, you know, like I Massachusetts obviously isn't 
uh, like a red state generally, but it is interesting that the marijuana issue is kind of shifting over to a point now where um, even in states that will elect Republican governors, they're also considering uh, reforming their marijuana laws. Um, speaking of which, there are a bunch, like so many marijuana ballot initiatives um, going on throughout the country this year. Do you think um, that's been beneficial to your own campaigns or do you sometimes feel like you're being like because the message gets repeated and it's familiarizing voters with the basic talking points or do you feel like sometimes you get overshadowed by other campaigns? Um, in Massachusetts, I don't think we've been affected uh, primarily by um, uh, what's happening in other states. Um, I know there's always been a theory that a lot of you know the money that wants to donate to uh, legalization campaigns is getting spread thin. Um, we've you know we have had some you know problems raising money from within the marijuana industry, if you will, which is kind of mm-hmm. ironic since we're always being attacked as mm-hmm. an industry-driven initiative. We had to cancel a fundraising event a few weeks back that featured Barney Frank because we didn't sell enough tickets. So you know we we haven't seen this sort of like great backing from the industry. In recent weeks, it's picked up a little bit, uh, but that caused a little bit of controversy here. And it really gets back to, I think, um, a misperception about Massachusetts. I think a lot of people thought it's going to be given. Massachusetts is a super blue state. It's Mm -hmm. liberal. Um, And as you pointed out, four of our last five governors have been Republicans. Um, We don't have a legislature that, for instance, I just saw in uh, Arizona, the the Arizona Democratic Party endorsed the legalization initiative. Uh, We're not going to see something like that in Massachusetts, even though people would think that that's the state where you would see it. But, you know, Massachusetts, the the politicians in Massachusetts who call themselves Democrats in a lot of other states, they would be Republicans. And Mm -hmm. that's that's sort of like a misperception that a lot of people have about Massachusetts. Um, But luckily, we've seen uh, positive polls in the last couple of weeks. So the idea is to just keep our message getting out there. Um, And we're doing that with a new TV spot that started this week. So, um, you know, we're keeping our fingers crossed and we're trying to do every little bit that we can to educate the voters. Yeah, I, um, I'm i not sure. I don't I think it's mostly a, a, a push or a draw. Um, I mean, it's helpful that other states have passed this. So um, we have quantifiables to point to, uh, you know, our, our opposition here, uh, they speak of only hypotheticals. Uh, but if you look at what's actually going on in Colorado, teen use hasn't gone up, the sky hasn't fallen, tourism hasn't gone down, it's, it's gone up. So uh, it's great that, that we're not the first. I think there's definitely an advantage to that. Um, but by and large, Mainers are pretty focused on, on Maine. Um, and uh, Maine, Mainers have no problem leading on this issue or other social issues, um, given that we have had marijuana decriminalized since 1976 and medical marijuana since 1999. Mm-hmm. Um, we're really familiar with marijuana. Mm-hmm. And, and speaking of that, uh, of Maine leading on this issue, it's been interesting to see the the groundwork essentially being laid over the past few years with all of the initiatives at the city level first. Um, I, I know that in uh, Portland, um, and I know I think at least one other city, um, marijuana has actually been legalized. It's been, uh, you know, a, a bit more symbolic than anything since uh, police can still enforce state law. 
Um, but why did you go to uh, decide to go about doing it this way in Maine? And Jim, also, I know that a similar approach was taken in Massachusetts, so I'd be curious to hear how that interacted with the campaign, too. Well, um, you know, this has been done on, on other issues in, in Maine. I believe there was equal rights amendments that got, you know, that were passed at the local level before a, a statewide um, amendment went through. And, you know, we're also um, replicating what has worked in other states. And what has worked in other states is laying that groundwork um, four, five, six years before the statewide vote. Uh, that's what Mason and Steve were doing in Denver in Colorado. Mm -hmm. And that, that, you know, got a lot of opportunities for earned media so that, um, you know, we can explain why regulating marijuana is a better approach, uh, that marijuana is safer than alcohol. Um, you know, we like that message because by and large, you know, people think marijuana is harmful and too harmful to make it illegal. And so it doesn't matter how many millions in revenue it's going to bring in, uh, if, if it's, if it's bad and it's, so it's a moral issue at that point, not a, a pocketbook issue. So, uh, we've, softened up the voters over the last four years by um, explaining the benefits of regulating marijuana, of explaining the substance and educating about the substance itself. And um, we've had debates. We've, we've been on, you know, statewide TV pretty much. Um, so I think it has helped. Uh, in our research, um, more people think uh, marijuana is, is safer than alcohol, uh, far more than, than think that alcohol is, is more dangerous. Though the, the majority think that it's, you know, they're about the same. So, you know, we're happy with the education that we've done. And uh, I think we uh, have made inroads. Um, our local initiative in Lewiston failed in 2014. Uh, but Lewiston uh, is, a, is an interesting place. It's full of French Catholics, French Americans uh, that are registered Democrat, but don't typically vote Democrat necessarily. Um, so... Uh, you know, politics isn't a zero-sum game. We we didn't win there, and we didn't get on the ballot in New York, but we talked to hundreds, thousands of people to get their signature, and we got the earned media from from those uh, events, and, and that's not nothing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we haven't um, um, <clears throat> done the patchwork approach in Massachusetts. Um, it's been pretty much statewide in 2008 with decrim and in 2012 with medical marijuana. Um, so... You know, both of those passed overwhelmingly uh, with mm -hmm. more than 62% in, in each of them. Um, and it's important to note that both of those were opposed by the very same people that are opposing us now. Uh, the, governor at, the governor at the time, the attorney general, the mayor of Boston, most uh, legislators, the DAs, all the sheriffs, all the same people. Um, we're, we're seeing now them trying to say that this is an unprecedented coalition, but what it is is a repeat of 2012 and 2008. Mm -hmm. And it really is. The messaging is the same. Um, and the funny thing is they brought up this fear, you know, it's going to be calamity on the streets. We're not going to be able to control it. And the day after the election, they never mentioned it again. And by the way, we haven't seen a single uh, percentage increase in, in OUI uh, involving marijuana at all. So, you know, it's the same messaging. And as soon as the, you know, it, the initiative passes, they forget about the very things they were asking for, which is more control on the streets. They just go away. So we're seeing it again. Luckily, uh, because of legalization, the push for legalization in other states, uh, we're seeing technology come forward that will give law enforcement the ability to mm -hmm. test for intoxication uh, by marijuana. You know, there's still some things to be worked out, but 
they're getting what they want, but they're not doing it themselves. It's the legalization movement and uh, the entrepreneurs that are looking and saying, you know, we can help and we can maybe make some money by giving them instruments uh, to 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 help with this. So the ironic thing is that we're doing it, uh, not them. Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking of lessons learned from other states, one big issue that's been coming up recently around um, both legalization um, or or rather cannabis industry in legalization states and in medical marijuana states is the racial justice aspect where, um, you know, a big motivation for a lot of people to support legalization is to end uh, the war on marijuana, which disproportionately affects people of color. I know that in Massachusetts, there is a piece of your initiative that addresses uh, justice reinvent- uh, reinvestment specifically. Jim, can you talk to us a little bit more about that? And David, I don't know if there's anything similar in Maine's initiative. Yeah, we have a clause in our um, um, initiative that directs the Cannabis Control Commission to encourage, to come up with policies that encourage participation uh, in the industry by community and community members who have been adversely impacted by prohibition. So uh, we think that's something that is going to be very, very um, desirable to the people that you just talked about, the people who have experienced the racial injustices of prohibition. Uh, California put something similar in their initiative. They pretty much borrowed the same language that's in ours. And uh, we hear that a lot when we go out to uh, uh, communities with large, you know, uh, black um, or uh, Latino populations. And we do hear that, you know, what's in it for the people who have been adversely uh, impacted by by um, by law enforcement of the war on marijuana. And uh, we're very proud to say that, well, here's what's in it. And we think it's gonna be a very, very effective tool for encouraging um, uh, participation by those communities. Um, yeah, in our main initiative, we don't have anything like that. You know, by and large, Maine is roughly 99% white. Um, so that's somewhat less of an issue mm-hmm. here, but um, you know, the ACLU did do a study here in Maine, and uh, minorities are disproportionately uh, affected by marijuana prohibition, even in Maine. Uh, they're you know, twice as likely to, to be charged, even though rates of, of use are the same. And in some counties, York County, which is our southernmost county, they're you know, five times more likely. And so... Um, it's just the same one guy getting arrested over and over. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, what we do have in our initiative is 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 um, the fact that we're going to take take away uh, police will have one less thing to stop people for and and, and hassle people over and and that's something uh, and we also have very low barriers to entry for those that want to get into the adult use market mm-hmm. so so it's just easier for low income or mom and pop type shops to to get into. Uh, the adult use market, and it's not going to be just reserved for the the business with you know half a million in an escrow account. Mm-hmm. And and I think that is a really important part too <laughs> that people often don't really consider as much when talking about these initiatives is who exactly is going to be the ones running the industry once it's legalized. I mean, we talked about that a lot with uh, Responsible Ohio, but just because it was particularly egregious in terms of how the licenses were being given out to essentially people who who gave money to the campaign. 
but in Massachusetts, there's, there have been similar criticisms in our medical marijuana market um, that when that was implemented, the state legislature and the, regula- and the regulators did a, a pretty poor job um, in, in terms of uh, setting up the program and then granting those licenses. There was a lot of charges of it being politically influenced. There was a congressman who uh, just happened to somehow get almost perfect scores on everything. Um, a bunch of people, uh, they just didn't really do a good job. So, um, And of the people who did get in, it's tremendously expensive to get involved. I think it's uh, about $35,000 a year just um, to, for your license with the, with the state on top of all the other costs. And so how do each of these initiatives make it so that people have lower barriers to entry of getting involved in this industry so that there's actually equal opportunities and not just taking a bunch of jobs from essentially uh, people with few opportunities uh, and giving them to, to people who already have all that all that capital. Uh, well, again, um, Maine's low fees um, will attract um, businesses of all sizes. We dedicate 40% of cultivation licenses for those growers that are 3,000 square feet in canopy space or less, and we cap it at Uh 30,000 square feet, so no one will be bigger than 30,000 square feet canopy, and that's to discourage the mega grows, Um, and you can, you know, buy, apply for cultivation license as small as 10 by 10, 100 square feet, Um, so that, and and, and those fees scale up, so the smaller growers pay the less, and bigger growers pay more. And I think that will help preserve the artisan aspect to this. I've you know read stories in Colorado that um, people are focused on on having really small grows so they can give the ladies the attention that they deserve. And you know if you go so big, you're going to lose quality, and it's it's gonna mm-hmm. um, it's gonna be up to the consumers to 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 drive what 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 the priorities are. Do we want um, the core site of of marijuana, or do we want the microbrews of marijuana. I think there's room for both, and um, I think also by and large, Coors Light and, and big uh, producers are losing their market share because, as a whole, people want local, people want quality, and that's not just marijuana or alcohol. It's kind of where we're going as a society. The you know say what you will about Whole Foods, but it's probably a good thing that people are concerned about what they're putting into their bodies and, and mm-hmm. want to know who, who grew it or where it came from. And I don't think that'll go anywhere uh, after legalization passes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we don't have that size limitation in Massachusetts. I think that's very interesting, by the way. Um, we do have four license categories that range from 5000 to 15000 so it's considerably less than the marijuana, the medical marijuana industry mm-hmm. uh, licensing fees. Um, and to avoid the foot dragging that took place with medical, remember that was implemented by a hostile administration. The governor opposed mm-hmm. it. Then the current governor came in, he opposed it as well. There was no great impetus to move forward on this. Um, that's why we didn't put it under a state bureaucracy, an existing state bureaucracy. We created a commission Uh, that isn't answerable to any administration. Uh, They are answerable to the treasurer, but it's a system that the treasurer, like every other regulatory agency in Massachusetts, the the appointing authority appoints the commissioners and then gives them control over the industry. Mm -hmm. Um, And we've seen that work pretty well in Massachusetts, and we think that that will, uh, we give them deadlines as well. They have to have uh, certain things done at a certain time. 
and we have a fail-safe that if they don't have that done by a certain time, um, uh, retail locations can open uh, by other methods, which is, you know, working on the people who are already on the list for the medical marijuana industry. So we don't think that that will happen. We think that the Cannabis Control Commission will meet their deadlines, but we do set deadlines because we, we don't want to repeat of the, the morass that is occurring in the medical marijuana market. And I'd like to add, um, you know, we had, when medical marijuana was expanded in 2009 in Maine, um, there was a task force by the administration to implement this, and the task force said we should only have one dispensary for every health region in Maine. Well, there's only eight health regions in Maine. Uh, so right now we still only have eight dispensaries and a couple thousand caregivers or small producers who can theoretically only sell to a, a few patients. Um, this time around, seven years later, there's a lot more scrutiny. A lot more people are paying attention. So I think it's also just going to be a lot harder for those kind of um, shenanigans to, to happen because people want to get into the market and people are going to call out something when it's not fair. So I think we have that as an advantage as well. And if people are worried about it, then they should give to MPP in these campaigns because if we have millions from small donors, then that's less um, money that comes from the industry that you know wants something in return. All right. Well, that takes us to the end of our discussion. Um, thank you both so much for enlightening us about the differences in your campaigns and updating us as to how they're going. Uh, at the time this episode airs, there'll be less than a month left until the actual election. So this has been a really good um, conversation to see where the campaigns are so far. We do always wrap up our discussions with a call to action since educating people is important, but not as important as also using that knowledge to improve their communities and make the world a better place. So if you guys could each have our listeners do one action right now, what would you have them do? Uh, Jim, you want to take it? Uh, register to vote and vote on November 8th. That is the key thing right now. We need turnout. Succinct. <laughs> yeah, if mm -hmm. you're in Maine, please make sure you're registered. You can register at the poll. So literally just show up. Um, if you're mm -hmm. not in Maine but want to see marijuana legal in your state, then you need to help the states that are doing it now. Uh, so, so go to Regulate Mass, go to RegulateMaine.org, and, and donate five bucks. All right. Thank you both so much for coming on and speaking with us today. Again, this has been David Boyer and Jim Borgasani. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to Episode 66 of This Week in Drugs, hosted by Sam Chasey and myself, Rochelle Young. The show is produced by Tyler Williams, and Sarah Merrigan is our engagement director. We'd also like to thank David Boyer and Jim Borgasani once again for joining us for our roundtable discussion. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for the show, please send us a message on Facebook or Twitter, or email us at thisweekindrugs at gmail.com. You can also check out our website, thisweekindrugs.org, for more information about the show, including links to our guests, news stories, and forecasts. If you're listening to this podcast on iTunes and like what you hear, please give us a rating and write a quick review. It helps us get to the top of the charts so other people can find us and start listening and learning too. Finally, This Week in Drugs is an all-volunteer project. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to support our work, please check out our Patreon page, which is linked to on our website. This allows you to commit a small monthly donation to help defray the cost of our web hosting fees. So that's all for episode 66 of This Week in Drugs. We hope you enjoyed the show, and we'll see you next week.
Our outro song this week is Hank by Old Souls. <laughs>